Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about the thing that everyone is currently obsessed with, vaccines. There are not enough of them right now, and that is causing problems. We'll be joined by two special guests. Hello, I'm Anna Isaac, and I'm Trade and Economics Correspondent for Politico Europe. Anna has been doing some really amazing reporting on this issue. Hello, I'm Prashant Yadav. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and a professor at INSEAD. Prashant is one of my go-to supply chain geeks for essential medicines. Let's start with the obvious. Right now, the world wants a lot of vaccines. Here's Prashant. So in a routine year, we need somewhere between a billion to a billion and a half doses of vaccines, largely for pediatric vaccination programs, but also for some other adult vaccination programs, such as flu uh, and others. And now this year, we are talking about a need for as much as 8 billion doses only for COVID-19 vaccines. And our installed capacity currently, uh, again, the estimates vary a lot, but would be somewhere in the range of 2 billion to 4 billion doses. Ignoring trade for a moment, this is just a massive challenge. The trade elements of it make something that's already really hard even harder. The reason is that vaccines rely on supply chains. But it's also that production only happens in a few places. Most of the manufacturing is taking place in the EU, the UK, Switzerland, the US, India, and China. Getting vaccines and their ingredients to where they're supposed to be is going to rely on borders being open. Okay, so we need open borders to make all this vaccine stuff get to where it's supposed to be. And and keeping borders open was always going to be really hard. That's because there was always going to be a period of time when the world wanted many, many more vaccines than could be produced. That time is now. And and the danger was always going to be that politicians would say, yeah, I know you think you have a contract to export these vaccines, but we need them more. So we are not going to allow you to export them. And so just stepping back, if you, if you think about the different ways of allocating vaccines, you can hand them out based on who needs them the most, who is willing to pay the most for them, uh, who agreed the tightest contract for them, or where the vaccine physically are, where they physically being made, i.e. who has power over those final products. At the moment, it's some combination of those. And when you have export controls, export restrictions, you're picking that last one. You're pulling supplies to wherever you've got the final stage of of production. We are already seeing signs of export restrictions, though in lots of different shades of gray. Here's Prashant on what's been going on. So I think the restrictions come in different forms. I mean, some of them are more subtle and they come in the form of Uh, having directly invested in expanding the manufacturing capacity of either a vaccine company or a vital ingredient provider, and then embedding within the contractual clauses of that investment 
something to say that they should be prioritized for the population of the country that's investing. That's one form. We see that in U.S. We see that in some other places. The other is a more blunt form of export restriction, which we have seen from the European Union or countries within the EU, which is we will not allow the export of vaccines leaving our geographical area. And a third form is what we've seen in India, where the government um, would would tell manufacturer manufacturers that we do need to give priority to the population, so you should divert more of your supplies here without necessarily using a legal or, a, or an official policy instrument. So it's hard to say which one of these is the worst offender. I think in some some form or, or manner, they're all equally uh, offenders to the system we want to see. Let's start with India, but only briefly because it's really fuzzy. It's really not clear what's going on, but there are signs to suggest that some exports have been blocked. On February 20th, Adar Poonawala, the, the CEO of the Serum Institute, this is the massive Indian vaccine manufacturer that, that's making the AstraZeneca vaccine, he tweeted out, Dear countries and governments, as you await COVID Shield supplies, COVID Shield is, is the name they've given to the AstraZeneca vaccine, I humbly request you to please be patient. The Serum Institute of India has been directed to prioritize the huge needs of India and along with that, balance the needs of the rest of the world. We are trying our best. I think there the, the point to zero in on is this this bit where he says he's been directed to prioritize the huge needs of India. A really interesting example we've had crop up recently is that of India. Now, it's not quite clear what the government's direct involvement has been with this, but there are signs to suggest um, that there has been a deliberate block of a large tranche of exports to the UK. The Serum Institute of India, one of the biggest drug makers in the world, is meant to be providing the UK with 10 million of its 100 million doses that it's meant to get from AstraZeneca. Now, the latest tranche of this, around 5 million, is going to be delayed for at least a month. And it's having a really huge impact on the whole vaccine timetable in the UK. So it's fair to say that the UK is getting caught up in a few different export ban rows. Now, as part of this whole discussion, my, my brilliant colleague Natasha Loder tweeted out this question of, of why Britain was buying supplies from India, given that those sites were supposed to serve poor countries and I would tend to agree with her that, that that is a good question. The ethics of this are, are pretty murky. But before we dive deeper into the example of what, what the UK is doing, uh, let's first talk about the US, uh, which is also very murky. Um, for the most part, the US is really just not exporting any finished vaccines. And the thing that is that is really confusing, the thing that people seem not to know for sure is exactly what the binding constraint is on companies. Why aren't they exporting any vaccines? Talking to people who are more in the know, it, it seems like the main restriction was actually written into the contracts. It was written into the contracts the US government agreed with the pharmaceutical companies. Here's Prashant. So to answer your question, do we know explicitly what products in what volume are being impacted through which contract? No, we don't. What we do know is that most of the contracts do have a clause which says the priority of the output coming out of such investments will be for uh, use 
for either U.S. population or for a U.S. client in case it's an intermediate product. We're going to need a, a, a bit more context here. Obviously, it's not normal for, for governments to do this, but there's been this massive crisis and the U.S. government has been doing some really, really extraordinary things. And one of those things was called Operation Warp Speed. And that was set up in May of 2020. The idea being it wanted to get vaccines to Americans as soon as possible. It did a few different things. One involved writing contracts worth billions of dollars to help vaccine sponsors. So this is Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, the ones you've heard about, sponsoring them to to do their clinical trials and to have them set up their, their manufacturing plants. And that meant vaccine manufacturing could start even before the regulators had said that the vaccines were going to be okay. The government took on the risk that the vaccines actually might not work and gave these companies lots of money to prepare as if they would. And in exchange, it looks like the U.S. government then owns, say, the first 100 million doses of the vaccines that are being made at at these plants here in America. A second thing that Operation Warp Speed did was to subsidize American companies that make vaccine inputs. So things like the the glass vials and syringes, but also bioreactors. These are complicated uh, pieces of equipment that the companies need to to cook up the vaccines. Now, it's a bit less clear here, but it seems as though those subsidies also came with strings attached. That American companies that are making the vaccines well, they would be first in line for these inputs. The U.S. government did this, obviously, so that they wouldn't be subsidizing all of this input expansion just to have a bunch of other countries then buy up all of the inputs for their vaccine manufacturers. So basically what happened is the U.S. sewed up its supplies by spraying a bunch of companies with money and saying, hey, you get this money, we're first in line. But even if it hadn't done that, I don't think the policymakers around the world were looking at America last summer, which was, you know, then had the the Trump administration, um, and thinking, yeah, sure, the U.S. will be a a reliable supply of of vaccines. Uh, I I don't think they were expecting um, the U.S. to, to be exporting many of them. As well as the contracts, the U.S. had this thing called the Defense Production Act. Now, this is an insanely opaque law that the U.S. government actually invokes all the time. Uh, Normally, it's just the Department of Defense saying, hey, this is an emergency. Our request for inputs should get to the front of the queue. We really need those staplers um, or or probably some other slightly more deadly product. Um, But in this case, the U.S. government has essentially used this to say vaccine production gets priority. So you, company, you have to divert these inputs that were meant for something else, you have to divert them towards these U.S. vaccine producers. Now, the question is, well, where are they diverted from? Who's losing out here? Now, there are, there are some examples we've tracked down of vaccine production getting put ahead of other drugs, so other biologic drugs that are actually meant for U.S. consumers. But it also seems that they are pulling away inputs that were destined for other countries for export. Um, And that looks like an export restriction. 
Now, these things aren't publicly announced, but you have people involved in vaccine supply chains in other countries already complaining that this U.S. use of the DPA is affecting supply chains and causing problems and shortages of certain kinds of inputs. Uh, recently, there was a, a press conference with Richard Hatchett of, of CEPI, which is one of the organizations behind COVAX, helping to get vaccines to to the you know the poor world. Um, and he said he he didn't know of any manufacturing outside the U.S. that had been stopped because of input shortages. Um, but he said he was aware that this reallocation of inputs was leading to short supplies for production outside the U.S. In some cases, these restrictions are basically a, a grab for stuff that's in really short supply. It's not the case that the U.S. is is awash in some of these inputs. They're using them to, to make their own vaccines. And in some cases, maybe this does prevent a bidding war that would just jack up prices. But you are also getting some cases, and one in particular, where the United States has just been sitting on a bunch of stuff and refusing to export it. And this is the case of the AstraZeneca vaccines. And here, the United States reportedly has millions of doses that have been manufactured in the United States, but that still can't be used in the United States because the Food and Drug Administration hasn't authorized them yet. In early March, the EU asked for for some of these doses, which makes sense. They have authorized them. The Biden administration said no. I'd say this was not a very nice move by the Biden administration. And if this were not a family-friendly podcast, I might go a little bit further with my language. Um, Other governments were asking for the doses too. And I saw this press conference on March 2nd where Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was asked about President Joe Biden's response to a request to share vaccines with Mexico. Uh, His focus is on ensuring the American people are vaccinated. And yes, now we have more than enough doses. We will have more than enough doses to vaccinate the American people. But there are a couple of factors that our team looks at, including the fact that we don't know which vaccine will be most effective on children. We don't know the impact of variants still under consideration and being looked at by our health and medical experts. Uh, We are, uh, of course, securing all of these doses so we can plan for a range of scenarios. We have contributed to COVAX, uh, which is the international coordinating body to help provide assistance around the world. And certainly when we get to the point where the majority where we have uh, vaccinated the American public, of course, we want the global community to be vaccinated. That makes us all safer. In the middle of March, though, there was some compromise. Uh, The Biden administration did say it was going to loan Mexico and Canada 4 million doses of of that AstraZeneca vaccine, and then those countries would pay back the U.S. in in future with other doses. I would also point out that it looks like the U.S. has donated money, but not doses, to the COVAX program. That's the one designed to get doses to poor countries. But I guess the U.S. does now have one talking point that they can use to claim that they are being generous. Let's move on and and talk about Europe. I think one of the biggest contrasts with the U.S. is that none of the companies are are trying to get vaccines out of the U.S. Everyone knows that there's really no point. Whereas the EU is a massive exporter. It has already sent tens of millions of doses to the rest of the world including more than 9 million to the UK and and even 1 million to the US. But 
since late January, the EU has had an export authorization scheme in place. So if you want to export a vaccine from the EU, you need permission from the member state as well as the European Commission. Now, this scheme only started in late January, so obviously it wasn't there from the start. To understand this export authorization scheme, you need to understand what has been going on with the UK and AstraZeneca, one of the the major manufacturers. Basically, what happened is last summer, AstraZeneca agreed contracts to supply Britain and the EU. That was that was separate. Obviously, you know, Brexit happened. And some of the sites run by AstraZeneca serving the EU ran into some problems. Now, this kind of thing happens. A particular site just doesn't produce as much as you're hoping for initially. Fine. You know, with these products, there can be a lot of learning by doing um, at first. But AstraZeneca continued to serve the UK using some of its European production capacity. That's happening as the UK is sending nothing to the EU. Now, add to that that the UK is absolutely smashing it in terms of their vaccine rollout. They're doing much, much better than the EU in terms of actually getting vaccine shots into people's arms. From the EU's perspective, that was pretty frustrating. Why is Britain getting so many vaccines? Listeners may have heard about the the recent spat where Charles Michel, the the president of the European Council, accused the UK of applying export restrictions. Dominic Rabb, the the British foreign secretary, said, "Oh, oh, no, 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 we're not. Here's Anna. The UK contract gives preference for all UK production to meet UK needs first. It's very clearly written into the contract. It's very precise. It's very detailed. Um, There's also a basic premise of if you are not producing enough to go beyond the needs of the domestic population, then you don't have a basis for export, especially if drugs are going straight from the factory gate to distribution by the UK government to then be going into people's arms. So it looks like the British government did something similar to the US. There is no law that says thou shalt not export, but the idea is written into the contracts with the companies. Now, personally, and at the risk of making lawyers' heads explode, I think that if you write into a contract, you cannot export to anyone else until after you've served us. That is pretty similar in spirit and in practice to an export control law written after you've agreed the contract. But maybe that's why I do not have an illustrious legal career ahead of me. Um, Anyway, the European Union did not accept that its contract justified AstraZeneca sending all these vaccines from European sites to other countries. Anna looked into the contracts. The EU, at a fundamental level, felt like it had got a similar deal to the UK. If you hear statements from the European Commission, they believed that they had, in their agreement to get their doses and the timeline for those doses to be delivered, the same level of control over the supply chain of drugs within the EU. But that wasn't necessarily the case. They used a different legal system, Belgian law, that is harder to swiftly enforce contracts within. And they also didn't get the same tight wording around what ownership of different factories and manufacturing sites they could claim. 
Anna mentioned a few other reasons the UK government was was better able to lock down these supplies, including its experience handling procurement for the National Health Service. There were some more. The UK um, first struck a deal, as it were, with um, the Oxford AstraZeneca development in the spring of last year. This isn't the same contract that people have been comparing signed in August at the same time as the EU's contract with AstraZeneca. The UK was, as it were, sort of a very early partner in the development of the vaccine. And that is partly informed its um, relationship with AstraZeneca throughout. Um, This means that when it came to the the EU's perspective of having, you know, the same legal claim over AstraZeneca's supply chain, the same expectations of doses being delivered at a certain point when AstraZeneca fell far short of those deadlines, um, means that of the two, the UK seems to have won out. So AstraZeneca had a shortfall in terms of what it had promised several different partners, but contracts aren't a cue. They're a bilateral relationship between the person asking for delivery of something and the contracting party who's meant to deliver it. And the UK, it seems, had a stronger relationship. It had a greater, harder legal claim, as it were. As Anna said, contracts aren't a cue. But you can tell how toxic the politics was in the EU. And in late January, the EU said, nope, enough. You are going to need our permission to export these vaccines. Now, when you've got the context of Brexit and already a certain amount of distrust building up there, this meant that it became a really heated political situation. You had some crazy things happening, you know, some real mic drop moments. For instance, uh, there was the three hour mistake, as it's termed, where the EU decided it was going to potentially override uh, the Northern Irish Protocol. That's part of the withdrawal agreement, a treaty that was um, in place to do the divorce part of the relationship with Brexit. To give a bit more explanation, the Northern Irish Protocol was agreed between Britain and the EU to avoid a hard border within Ireland. The main point to know is that a hard border is bad. As part of the protocol, you can override the agreement and instate a border, but that's really the the nuclear option. Yet on January 29th, the EU said that that it was going to press the the nuclear button and do just that. It would stop vaccines from moving over the land border from Ireland into Northern Ireland. This was not handled well by the most senior people in the European Commission, and, and people completely freaked out. After only a few hours, and this was late on a Friday night, the commission ended up reversing its decision. The whole situation is having huge political consequences. That created a really fraught situation between Brussels and London. I think it's fair to say there's been a huge deterioration in that diplomatic and trading relationship. And that means that not only is this vaccine row leading to sort of export tensions for the whole drug supply chain, it's making the Northern Irish Protocol and the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement effectively unable to function. You have the MEPs, you know, members of the European Parliament saying that they don't want to ratify the trade and cooperation agreement. So the trade fallout from this drug row is enormous. It's meaning that the whole governance of two massive treaties is at stake. 
Speaking to European Commission officials, there is an insistence that these restrictions are directed at companies, not countries. This isn't a UK-specific issue, for example. Where restrictions have been applied, they say it is because the company in question is not honoring its contractual commitments. Other justifications for the scheme include transparency. It's meant to give more information to officials about what is going where. I was told the officials administering the scheme don't collect information on prices, just the number of doses and where they are going to. But a lot of the public rhetoric has been directed at the UK. The tension and fallout from Brexit has meant that having this country right on the shores of of the continent that's outstripping its timetable for vaccine doses is undermining this notion that there are huge benefits to being a member of the European Union, that Brexit was a bad idea. It becomes a very politically fraught situation. So that's why the EU has its export authorization scheme. But the first formal block on a shipment wasn't actually for exports destined for Britain. It was on a shipment of 250,000 doses that were supposed to go from Italy to Australia. Now, there is a bit of an argument about need here. The Italians are justifying the move and saying, look, Australia has fewer than 20 COVID cases now, whereas we have thousands. The feeling was that Australia was geographically privileged as an island. It had basically cordoned itself off and had managed to contain the disease. It had this natural advantage. And another thing is that this was really just a short-term hiccup for Australia. AstraZeneca is also making the vaccine in Melbourne and is on schedule to start delivering doses to Australians from the plant there, but by the end of March. Australia's response to the European bloc, however, was pretty clever. Australia had a neat way of trying to manage this to look like the good guy in the situation. So several hundred thousand doses that it was expecting to get from Italy were actually blocked by the European Commission. And Australia, rather than insisting that they be sent to, um, you know, be sent over to Melbourne, they said, it's okay, we understand. But if you could send them to Papua New Guinea, because it's having a really difficult time as a developing country coping with the pandemic, that would be great. And in diplomatic circles, this was regarded as uh, playing something of a blinder because it, it put the EU in a very difficult situation when we've got the context of the World Trade Organization discussing a whole host of different export restrictions on medical treatments and vaccines and how the intellectual property behind them could be best shared to make sure that everyone in the world can fight this pandemic. My general feeling about all of this is that the EU has been pretty transparent about what it's doing, and as a consequence, it is getting much, much more flack. But the reality is that they are exporting a lot of vaccines, and so I'm I'm not really sure it's very fair that they're getting all of this negative attention, all the headlines, while the US and the UK aren't. Now, it it is the case that these export authorization restrictions are creating problems. Even when a vaccine is is authorized, the process can cause delays. um, That can cause problems for vaccines that need to be refrigerated or on a really tight distribution schedule. Um, I heard about some missed flights. That's really not what you want in this situation. 
I agree that the EU has probably gotten a, a, a disproportionate amount of bad press on this, given what they've actually done. One obvious question, though, is whether this could actually get much, much worse. A tit-for-tat trade war on vaccines and in vaccine inputs could get really, really ugly really, really fast. The UK civil service are very sensitive to each and every small component of the supply chain. So they are thinking about their bilateral relationships with the people that they might need to upscale their fin and finish mechanisms. They're thinking about the diplomatic relationship to make sure they have the glass vials in hand. And they are trying to work out how they can become less and less dependent on the sensitivities of global supply chains over time. It was one of the big aspects of the way they developed their vaccine task force planning was to how can we possibly upscale domestic manufacturing in order to minimise our dependence on elsewhere. But as we're seeing from the impact of export restrictions on the rollout of the vaccine in the UK, they're still hugely dependent on imports from elsewhere. The spat between the UK and the EU could get nasty. I think one of the most sensitive things the EU could do in terms of the non-AstraZeneca manufactured vaccines is cut off supply of the Pfizer-BioNTech doses. That's because as it stands, people need two doses of one vaccine. And so it's certainly fair to say that the biggest concern for the UK government is its ability to source the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. As someone whose parents have had one dose of that Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is is being made uh, in Belgium for the UK, um, I am also very, very sensitive to that getting cut off. I do think it's the case, though, that the EU needs inputs from the UK. For example, a recent article in the Financial Times has said that the EU gets lipids, this is a, an input critical for the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, from the UK. So if the EU were to cut off vaccines going to the UK, I suppose the UK could cut off the inputs going to the EU. Obviously, this is a broader risk. Supply chains are super complicated. And the thing that we're really worried about here are these murky restrictions. So maybe something gets delayed. Maybe one side thinks that that's an export restriction and retaliates, and then things spiral out of control from there. Obviously, this this risk of a trade war is much broader than the UK and the EU. Uh, there are a lot of countries trading vaccine inputs between each other not least the US and the EU. Uh, and there's recently been some efforts to, some dialogues to make sure that trade keeps on flowing there. Now, we're coming up to the end of the episode. So just a, a couple of, of big picture questions. The first one is to step back and ask whether any of these export restrictions are stopping vaccines from getting to the most vulnerable countries, the very poorest places. Here's Prashant. Yeah, so I would not put the lack of access in poorer countries on export restrictions. I think the export restrictions are largely a game that is being played amongst the countries which are a part of the vaccine manufacturing club, whether at the finished stage or at the ingredient stage or at some intermediate stage, right? So they are uh, putting restrictions on things that need to keep moving across borders. The challenge with access in low-income countries 
is more driven by um, just not having a right procurement structure or not allocating enough supplies to the procurement structure that was created for them, which is COVAX. And another area that becomes important is that if you look at the EU's export restrictions, they are excluding any export that happens for humanitarian users, which means any exports that are going to COVAX are not under the EU export restrictions. So in a way, it's not so much about, well, we won't send this material to, um, to poor countries. It's more about, oh, can we get more of the supplies from other competitors? Another way of saying this is that the problem for poor countries isn't that COVAX has supplies ready to go and they're being blocked from moving them out of the exporting countries. The problem is that the rich countries, through those advanced purchase agreements and those contracts, have bought up all the doses and are using them on themselves. So there's just not much left over to contribute to COVAX. So COVAX can't deliver doses to the healthcare workers on the front lines treating patients in in those poor countries. So the trade isn't flowing because of the way the contracts were drawn up right at the beginning. Another question is whether any of these restrictions could have long-term consequences, for example, for the location of production. When I wrote my piece in The Economist, I mentioned that next time uh, the authorities are going to be much more careful about nailing down supplies. Uh, The European Commission, for example, if the member states allow them to do it again, is certainly going to try to be as specific as, say, the UK or the US were when writing language and writing contracts to say, no, you have to serve us first. More broadly, this experience is going to have damaged trust. Uh, It's going to have changed perceptions about who is a reliable supplier. And, And companies are probably taking notice. Here's Prashant. When companies in the future will decide where to locate the next gene therapy plant, where to locate the large biologic facility to make all kinds of oncology drugs, they will keep in mind the fact that, well, in some locations, our exports could be blocked, but in other geographies, they are not. And that may lead to uh, them losing out. I spoke to one large manufacturer of personal protective equipment, which is another product category that was subject to lots of export restrictions. And they were telling me how they had essentially been forced to make investments out of their normal export production hub because they just couldn't rely on being able to get their products out. And one final point, when thinking about trade wars and retaliation and and what could go wrong... We have to remember that all those places that aren't part of the vaccine supply chain, well, they do have other forms of leverage, even over the big, rich, vaccine-producing countries. All this could end up damaging cooperation on other fronts in the future. The other longer-term risk is that countries who are not receiving vaccine supplies may not be as willing to share um, the virus sequence or the genetic sequences of viruses or sending specimens of new pathogens as and when they are detected. And then it puts us as risk that we cannot start uh, the development and manufacturing of vaccines quickly enough. And that is all for Trade Talks. 
A huge thanks to Anna Isaac at Politico and Prashant Yadav at the Center for Global Development. And just a plug to please read a new piece that I just published with Tom Boyke on vaccine manufacturing supply chains and, and lessons from how the U.S. scaled up theirs under Operation Warp Speed. It's called, Here's How to Get Billions of COVID-19 Vaccine Doses to the World. And as always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. We had a request from Twitter to reinstate the terrible, terrible double underscore jokes. Um, And the answer is no.